opportunity to welcome in five new members into our church membership. We pray that you would be near to them, keep the enemy far away from them, and that they would continue to grow in the grace and faith and knowledge of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church on 3rd and Cromwell in Lepakong, New Jersey. I pray that you continue to use us, continue to stretch us, continue to work in us in mighty ways, that we may be the light that we need to be in this community, and that you may use us in powerful ways, not only here in our community, but all around the world through the missions that we support. We thank you for all that you do in, through, and for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is always timeless. It is always true. No matter what time, culture, society we live in, no matter who we are, no matter what we've been through, it is always relevant. It is always true. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time that we have together, looking at your word, that the power of your word would go forth and work in our hearts and lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On a Christian website that makes commentary on cultural observations, I came across an article noting the most famous pop cultural references to the most famous verse in the entire Bible. And we all know this to be John 3.16. Now, I didn't know any of these. While we don't have this fast food chain around here, the restaurant chain In-N-Out Burger, anybody heard of that? Okay. Uh, John 3, next time you're there, John 3.16 is printed on the bottom rim of every disposable cup uh, that they give out. So check for that next time you're out, uh, out there. John 3, this one surprised me. John 3.16 apparently is also printed on the bottom of shopping bags that you get from the popular clothing store Forever 21. I had no clue. And Rainbow Man is famous for wearing a brightly colored wig and holding up a big sign that says John 3.16 at sporting events. But this last reference is probably the most famous in recent pop culture. Many people are familiar with the Christian football, sort of turned baseball, and then sort of back to football player, Tim Tebow. When foot, oh, and Tebow played in the BCS College Football Championship game, he wore for the first time as his eye black, one that said John, and the other one that said 316. At the time, Tebow played for the Florida Gators and ended up beating the undefeated Oklahoma Sooners and won the Heisman Trophy and led to him being drafted in the first round of the following NFL draft. But after that game, Tebow came to find out that 94 million people Googled what John 3.16 was. Tebow was more taken aback at the fact that 94 million people had no clue what John 3.16 was that they had to Google it. I got a kick out of this next reference, though. Exactly three years to the day from that BCS championship game, Tebow, then in the NFL and playing for the Denver Broncos, was playing in his first playoff game against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Tebow ended up throwing a touchdown pass in overtime to win Denver the game. Sorry, Steelers fans, I didn't mean to bring up bad memories. But, but afterwards, 
Thibault, at that point, well famous for his John 3.16 reference, learned something that, like I said, I got a kick out of. Denver's PR guy came up to Thibault and said, I don't think you realize this, but during the game, you threw for 316 yards, your yards per rush were 3.16, your yards per completion were 31.6, the time of possession was 31.06, and the ratings for the night were 31.6. And during the game, another 90 million people Googled John 3.16, and it's the number one thing on all social media right now. I have to assume this was 90 million different people who had Googled John 3.16 three years prior to that. I hope, or some people don't have very good memories. Plus, not everyone who watches NFL games watches college games and vice versa. So we're talking about 100 million people needing to look up what John 3.16 was. But on the plus side, about 100 million people read John 3.16 that night, many of who probably read it for the very first time in their lives, and all because one quarterback was brave enough to put it under his eyes on national television. Even so, John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. What has been used as a gospel in a nutshell verse for 2,000 years takes on a lot more profound meaning when viewed within the immediate context in which it's said. That's what we're going to be looking at today and how that impacts our individual lives and the lives of everyone we know or don't know. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John 3.16. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 3.16 or pull it up in your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Now, before we get into the specific, in, in, into the specific verse itself, let's look at the flow of this conversation Jesus has been having with this highly educated, highly intelligent, and highly influential man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because while he was intrigued by this fringe Jewish teacher from the boondocks who was creating quite a stir, he didn't want his peers to know that he had gone to have a personal conversation with this guy. Nicodemus didn't go visit Jesus because he was looking to get his mind changed about everything he had believed in and taught his entire life. That's not why he went. He was merely intrigued by Jesus and probably thought he'd hear the same things he already knew. But Jesus completely turned everything Nicodemus ever believed, knew, and thought and turned it all upside down. See, Nicodemus, like every other rabbi or Pharisee and therefore member of the Sanhedrin Council, believed that one could control their eternal destiny by how well they followed the Jewish law. If you followed it well enough, that was the basis for you being with God when you died. Like I've referenced before, sadly, this is what most people these days also believe. That if you're just generally a good enough person and try to follow rules of morality for the most part and you never do anything really bad, you know, like kill somebody, then you automatically get into heaven. But Jesus very quickly shuts down that thinking as dangerously wrong. In John chapter 3 and in verses 3 through 15, which we've covered over the past few weeks, Jesus turns everything around 
and directs Nicodemus back to what God had always intended. And if Nicodemus had actually paid attention to what was all throughout the Jewish scriptures, he would have seen this. The only basis for entrance into God's kingdom and therefore the kingdom of heaven is, as Jesus is very clear about in verses 3 and 7, is to be born again. That's the only basis. Jesus explains that further in verse 5, that what being born again means is that one must come to God and repent or turn away from their life led by selfishness and sin, symbolized by being born of the water of the baptism of repentance from sin. At the same exact time, one must also accept Jesus as having paid the payment of death for their sin and take that sacrifice for their own, making that the only basis for asking for forgiveness of sin and making Jesus the king over the rest of their lives. The Bible says that immediately upon that happening, the Holy Spirit comes and literally makes a home within us, guiding us, giving us wisdom, convicting us, and giving us comfort, peace, love, joy, and the empowerment to live the way God wants us to live. That's what's symbolized by being born of the Spirit. Both these references are in verse 5. All of that is wrapped up in the phrase being born again because it truly is a brand new spiritual birth you are a brand new person at that point with the holy spirit going to work on your life transforming your life your marriage your relationships and the whole way you view the entire world it really is a new birth experience well, all of this was not even on Nicodemus's radar. He thought he could earn his own way to God's favor. It never occurred to him that he was completely beholden to God's decision about his life and that all he could do was surrender himself to accepting the gravity of his sin and accepting that Jesus' sacrifice on his behalf as his substitute was his only hope. So even if this was if even this was completely foreign to Nicodemus, think about what Jesus says next to him in verse 316. If even all that we just covered was foreign to Nicodemus, think about what he thought about this following verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes and picture hearing that for the first time. That would have just sounded insane to you if you were Nicodemus. You might say, so what? What's the big deal? Especially if we're not one of those 90 million people who had to Google what John 3.16 was, and we've heard it our entire lives. So what? What's the big deal? But strip all of that preconception away and think about hearing this for the very first time. That's why I said that there is so much profound meaning in this verse, especially in connection with its immediate context. 
if it wasn't even on Nicodemus's radar that it was impossible for him to earn his way out of the judgment for his sin and rather needed to be saved from his sin, from his sin by someone else, there was no way he was prepared to hear all of what was included in verse 16. Here's why. We take the love of God as followers of Jesus for granted a lot of the time. We just, we always think about it. It's always there. God's love is always there for us, which is a truth that's an extreme source of comfort for us. But the concept of God's love, believe it or not, was not at the forefront of Nicodemus's mind. I'm sure he knew that love was a characteristic of God, but as a Pharisee, that certainly was not the emphasis on being a good Jewish person. In fact, when Jesus had a run-in with other Pharisees later on, he condemns them for caring way more about following the Jewish law perfectly than loving those close to them. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have followed all of it. So it's entirely conceivable that Nicodemus never really spent much time, if at all, of each of his days thinking about the love of God. That's not what he was thinking about most days. He was thinking about how well he had been following the Jewish law and forcing other people to do the same. If you're obsessing over following perfectly, especially all the pharisaical man-made rules added to God's original law, what are you not thinking about? God's love. You're not thinking at all about God's love. So for Jesus to start off this verse by talking about God's love would have been shocking to Nicodemus. In Nicodemus' mind, it was all about conversion. Gentiles converting to Judaism through baptism and following all the other aspects of Jewish law. God's love never factored into the equation, but there was no need for God's love to factor into the equation. One simply was swapping religions to Nicodemus, and it did not matter because like we talked about last week, every other faith system can be boiled down to just be a good person and earn paradise or a better reincarnation by doing what you're supposed to do. So really it didn't matter. You were just swapping religions. But the gospel message of Jesus' salvation must and always does start with the love of God. Because without the love of God, there would be no rest of the story. We would be dead in our sins condemned before God as judge, and only have the fate that our sinfulness earns all of us, eternal banishment to a place of physical and emotional torment called hell. That's God's justice. God is perfectly just, and this result is perfectly just. We wouldn't want it any other way because even innate within all of us and every other human being is this desire for justice and for wrongs to be righted. We don't want evil to go unpunished and we can't have it both ways. If sin and evil is punished, 
which is just, then it's also perfectly just for our sin to be condemned and for us to earn what all sin earns, death. We cannot weasel our way out of it based on our self-righteousness justification for our lives. Because what would happen then? Even people like Hitler, ISIS, or serial killers could do that. They could justify everything they'd done and say, well, I'm still good enough to get into heaven. The same justice must be true for everyone, or what is it not? Justice. But this is where God's love comes in. God is the perfection of all the characteristics we only reflect as humans as his creation. So God is the perfection of righteousness, wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, justice, and love. God is both perfectly just and perfectly loving. And so even though the punishment and payment for our sin is death and hell, God's love doesn't want us to have to experience that. So how do we get past that? What, is the, what could happen? How would any escape from that work? We'll come back to that in a minute. When Jesus said, for God so loved... I'm sure Nicodemus logically and naturally assumed that his next words were going to be his own chosen people. See, Nicodemus held firmly in his mind that the Jewish people were superior to every other people group on the face of the earth. Most certainly were the Jewish people superior to these filthy Gentile Romans and Greeks all around them. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, for God so loved the world. Jesus says that God loves the whole world, including everyone in it, no matter who they are, their race, ethnicity, political leaning, background, sins, past trauma, or perceived identity. The whole world. I think I can speak for all of us when I say, thank you, God. Thank you that your love makes it possible for anyone and everyone to be saved from their sin. For God so loved the whole world. When Jesus said these words, this was earth-shattering. This was the very first time in human history, John 3.16 is the very first time in human history that this was even a theological possibility. Sure, the prophet Isaiah said about 800 years before that, that the Messiah would be the light of God's salvation to the Gentile nations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God would love everyone, including the Gentiles. But yet, that's exactly what Jesus is declaring right here in John 3.16. And for the very first time in human history. Imagine Nicodemus recoiling at hearing that. Surely you're not serious, Jesus. God loves everyone? No. He might have thought he hadn't heard Jesus right. And if he did, that Jesus just marked himself right there, a raging lunatic or downright heretic. 
Next is the how for God's love being the entire foundation for salvation. The how is that God sent his only begotten son to that world. Now, if we remember back to our messages on John chapter 1, you'll remember that the word used here in the Greek is best translated one and only, not begotten, one and only. It's meant to describe a being that is the only one in that category, the only one to have ever existed with that being and with those qualities, stands apart from any other being that has ever existed. Jesus truly was the one and only being to have ever existed who added humanity to his deity, making him both 100% God and 100% man. This was crucial to our salvation as fallen human beings. In order for God's rescue plan for us to work, the one making the sacrificial payment of death must be sinless, and therefore God, and have all the being and qualities of a human being all the way up to sinfulness in order to fully redeem humanity in every way. Jesus' death and resurrection was not just for our sins. It was to redeem us in every way, to redeem our pasts, redeem our traumatic past experiences, redeem all of our wounds, physical, emotional, mental, psychological, and spiritual, and redeemed our cursed and broken bodies and minds. Jesus' redemption of us includes every single thing about us and who we are. When Jesus uses the term son, and by implication son of God, he's not referring to himself coming from, created by, or somehow birthed by God the Father. It's a term meant to describe the relationship between these two members of the Trinity. You might have wondered, why is one called God the Father, why is another one called God the Son? For us, with some kind of knowledge and understanding of the concept of the Trinity, that is God existing as one and also existing as three distinct persons, it's best described as a father and son relationship. God does it perfectly in how he describes this. A father, back in Bible, especially back in Bible times and culture, was the patriarch, that one who everyone else in the family answered to and honored. In the Trinity, God the Father is first in authority and has the plan for everything. God the Son, equal in being to the Father, submits to the Father's authority, obeys his will, and gives him glory and honor. I can name off multiple scripture passages that give evidence of that. Just as a human son would do a human father. So, these are terms to describe the relationship between these two persons of the Trinitarian Godhead. But to Nicodemus, only having an understanding of God as the one true God of Israel, any concept of the Trinity was mind-blowing. There just was no understanding of that built into the Jewish faith as Jewish people knew it. 
So again, not only is Jesus, imagine hearing this for the first time. Jesus is revealing the previously unknown truth of God loving all people, no matter what their background was in this verse, but he's also revealing the previously unknown truth of a glimpse at the Trinity for the very first time. It will be later revealed that there is also a third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. What Jesus also reveals here is that the truths of God's all-encompassing love and God sending the Son to earth are not the end of it. No one is just saved from their sin by default. That just because God loves them and just because Jesus died for them, that nothing else needs to happen. Why? Because if that was the case, there would still be no need for us to personally see the gravity of our own sin and repent of anything. The sin was the problem. The sin was always the problem. And so we need to personally admit to God that we know that our sin is the problem and we know that that sin separates us from him. Logically, the Holy Spirit can't change anything in us, and Jesus can't redeem us from anything unless we first see that everything needs to be changed, starting with the repentance from our personal sinfulness. This is also why one can't just believe that God exists and that be good enough to get into heaven. Just like we also referenced last week. You can't just say, ah, forget about all that other stuff. I'm fine just believing in God and trying to be a good person. Because you want to know why? Satan believes in the existence of God. So that can't just be it. It's nothing special that you believe in God. The whole kingdom of darkness believes in God. You don't get a gold star for merely believing in God. So, what is it? What is the only way to escape the condemnation of hell and gain entrance into eternal life in heaven? That's what Jesus says next. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We already established that it's not enough to just believe in God and just believe that Jesus exists. So what does believing in him mean? This is where the immediate context comes in again. Jesus had just referenced the story in Numbers 21, one which Nicodemus no doubt was familiar with, to describe how one must repent in looking to Jesus for the healing of salvation. He references this in verse 14. Those original Israelites who wanted to be healed from the disciplining plague of snakes in the camp needed to look at the bronze serpent Moses had made. In doing so, what were you really doing? You were admitting that you had been wrong and had committed sin. In other words, you were repenting from so audaciously complaining about God's miraculous provision for you. Jesus used that experience to describe what one needed to do to look to him for their salvation. That it had to start with a repentant heart. That's where it had to start. And what are the exact words Jesus uses in that illustration? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. 
Same exact phrase, believes in him, will have eternal life. It's the same exact reference that Jesus makes in the verse immediately following, in verse 16, but a much more famous verse. Believing in Jesus means looking to his death and resurrection and all that he said about himself with repentance from your own sin as your only hope of escaping what you deserve after death. Again, what do we all deserve after death? The Apostle Paul records for us, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn. It's what you get for what you do. So what we all deserve, what we all earn for our sin is death. Now this doesn't just mean physical death, because in the context of this letter to the Roman church, Paul uses the term death to mean spiritual death. We will all earn physical death at one point or another unless Jesus comes back before that. That's just a part of the curse of sin. But Jesus has even redeemed physical death for the believer in him. We'll get to that in a minute. What Paul is referring to in Romans 6.23 is spiritual death. Jesus uses the word perish in John 3.16. This does not mean that our souls will cease to exist like physical death at the point or like physical life at the point of physical death. Since this is spiritual death, this is ongoing. Just as one who is dead in their sins, like Paul says elsewhere in Romans, continues in that spiritual state of death until they come to Jesus. Just like in that understanding, one then continues to exist in spiritual death. What does that spiritual death state look like? Jesus himself used the words weeping and gnashing of teeth to describe this state and place. This phrase describes intense emotional torment with the word weeping and intense physical torment with the word gnashing or gritting of teeth. It's a place where God and everything that he is, remember, the perfection of love, joy, peace, goodness, etc., does not exist. Imagine a world completely bereft of anything good in this current world and who God is, especially including unspeakable emotional and physical torment. That's hell. It's not a place where you'll party with your friends. It's the worst state and place you can possibly imagine, and then some. And since this death is an ongoing and continuous death, it also lasts for eternity. This is an incredibly hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But remember, God is perfectly just. This is a perfect condemnation for the original sin of wanting to live our lives as if we were God ourselves. So what's the hope? What's the way of escape? And not only a way of escape from this, but a way to eternal joy. Exactly as what Jesus has been explaining to Nicodemus this whole conversation. Being spiritually born again. Receiving a brand new spiritual rebirth. 
That can only happen by every single one of us making a personal decision to come before God in prayer, telling him that we know we're sinful, that our sin separates us from him, and that we repent or turn away from that life anymore. We tell him that we understand that Jesus took our place and paid the wages for our sin, death, both deaths, to provide us with the way to forgiveness from God and salvation from our sins and the wages of those sins. We then accept that substitutionary sacrifice as being for us personally and ask God for forgiveness from our sin based only on Jesus' sacrifice. And then, because we've repented already of a life devoted only to our selfish desires, we make Jesus the king over the rest of our lives, seeking to please him in everything we do. When we do that, Jesus says right here at the end of John 3.16 that we are given something. We are given eternal life. And Paul says in Romans 6.20, this is the other half, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the only way to get it. It's the only way to get that gift of eternal life. While those who never repent and never make Jesus their own personal savior from sin and king over the rest of their lives only ever earn the wages of eternal death and all that that includes, those who do receive the gift of of eternal life. This is not just some boring existence where we float around and sit on clouds like a lot of pop culture references imply. Since hell is a real place where God and everything that he is is not, heaven is a real place where God and everything that he is is. Jesus doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about what heaven is like. There's some in the book of Revelation. But what we do know is all that we need to know. He's there. And frankly, just that knowledge alone is enough. Because everything that God is, the perfection of love, joy, peace, restoration, redemption, purpose, meaning, goodness, kindness and light will be so overwhelming we won't help but be able to praise him all the time there in fact the bible tells us that when jesus comes back for us the souls of those who have gone to be with him in physical death by that point he will bring back with him reunite them with your bodies and along with the bodies of those still alive at that point give brand spanking new bodies to fit for heaven free from decay, free from brokenness, pain, sickness, and loss. Along with those new bodies, we'll be given brand spanking new minds, free of sin and temptation, addiction, fear, depression, guilt, anxiety, any number of psychological ailments, and completely transformed in every way. Amen? So we will never fully comprehend what heaven is like while we're still in these earthly bodies and still using these finite minds. We'll only fully comprehend it when we get there. All of that is wrapped up in this one verse, 
John 3, 16. Of course, I could spend an entire sermon on just this one verse, right? No wonder it's the most famous verse in the whole Bible. It truly does give the gospel message in a nutshell. And especially now that we see its connection with its immediate context, can we see the profound meaning of it. And just like how the words of John 3.16 were, were, were within a personal conversation between two people, we too can share this one verse, one verse's hope and power with all those we have personal conversations with. Let's read this truly powerful verse one more time and soak all of it up now, knowing all of this powerful meaning. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This truly is something to be overwhelmingly thankful for. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this one verse, this gospel in a nutshell verse, the most famous verse in all of the Bible. We thank you for all of the profound power in it, all of the truth that's in it. It is the very basis for our salvation and our only source of hope and peace, not only for this world, but for the next. Lord, we thank you that not only do we have the gift of eternal life to look forward to, where everything is redeemed and everything is transformed, but we also catch a glimpse of that in the here and now, with the Holy Spirit giving us glimpses of that through his transformation and redemption of our lives, relationships, and bodies now. We thank you that you are a good, perfectly just, but also perfectly loving God. We thank you that you are our Abba, Father, and we can come to you in faith with anything that we're going through. Pour it all out to you. You want us to. Your word says, cast all our cares upon you, for you care about us. So let us take this basis with us into this following week and the whole rest of our lives, that we have been rescued, we have been saved, and we have this gift of eternal life. I pray all these things in the powerful and victorious name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and King. Amen.